I want to talk to you guys today about what chefs want. And how do I know what chefs want? I know because Ron Turnier, who's the owner at What Chefs Want, started the company called Creation Gardens. With Creation Gardens, he sat down a group of chefs in Louisville and he said, what do you guys want? And they said they wanted more selection. They wanted to be able to split cases. They wanted to be able to order on Sunday. They wanted to be able to place an order every single day. And Ron said, done. Those are the things that are going to help you succeed. Those are the things that we're going to do as a company. And that company has expanded and they've continued to grow, but those principles have stayed the same. But now they've added a, a the butchery, which is hand-cut steaks. They have seafood through Bluefin. They have specialty items, Creation Gardens produce. They are expanding and doing so many amazing things for locally owned and operated restaurants that they are living today what chefs want and every day warehouse here in nashville they're happy to help you visit them at whatchefswant.com i also want to talk to you today about super source now you've been hearing me talk about super source for about a year and a half now and jason ellis over at super source has been an amazing partner for us here at nashville restaurant radio he's just been amazing and you know why he's amazing because he actually cares about his customers it's not a matter of, hey, look, I just got to sell you chemicals. I got to get you in a dish machine lease. He has no contracts. He doesn't ask you to sign for six years or four years or one year or one month. He says, look, I want to earn it every single week. And that's what they do at SuperSource. They come in and they earn it every single week. Isn't it about time that the, your dish machine and chemical company care about your business? I love seeing Jason in my restaurants every single week. It's like seeing a good friend come in. He helps me. He comes up with ideas for me. I've never known so much about my dish machine and chemical uh, business, but you know what? My P&L notices and my dishes notice. I've got beautiful looking product. Uh, it's just it's just amazing. You guys got to check them out. Go to NashvilleRestaurantRadio.com. Click the sponsor tab and click on SuperSource. He's got specials. If you're a Nashville Restaurant Radio listener, he has a special offer for you. So if you go click that link and get a hold of him, tell him you heard him on Nashville Restaurant Radio, and uh, I think you get a little something special. So thank you, Jason. You've been an amazing partner. We love having you here at Nashville Restaurant Radio. Visit their website today. Welcome to Nashville Restaurant Radio, the tastiest hour of talk in Music City. Now here's your host, Brandon Still. Hello, Music City, and welcome to Nashville Restaurant Radio. My name is Brandon Still, and I am your host. I'll be joined with Jen Ichikawa here as we get into an amazing interview with Courtney Vrablick. Courtney is the executive director at The Store. If you don't know what The Store is, it is a free grocery store on 12 South in the Belmont area. And uh, it is brainchild of Brad and Kimberly Paisley. And she is the one who runs it. She makes the whole thing happen. And I tell you what, this is, this is why I do this podcast. Today's episode is why I wanted to do this. Because without this podcast, I don't think I know if I would have ever met Courtney. But she has been a fan. She's, she's definitely been um, a friend. And 
somebody that I've been so interested in interviewing because her outlook on things is really unique and really special. And I think that if we had more people like Courtney in this world, it would be a much, much, much better place. Uh, I've enjoyed this conversation, and uh, this is fun conversation with Jen too. This is another thing. This is the reason why I love Jen. She's so uh, she's so in tune with everything we talk about today, and homelessness, and food insecurity, and what we can do about it, and exactly what she is doing about it over at the store is what you're going to learn today. So this is a uh, it's a fantastic interview, and we we love that you guys are uh, are here for it. So let's jump in right now with Courtney Vrablick. All right, we are super excited today to welcome in Courtney Vrablick, and she is the executive director at The Store. Welcome to Nashville Restaurant Radio, Courtney. Hey, thanks for having me. So this is really exciting because you've um, been somebody who supported the podcast for a long time, and I've, I've got to meet you, and we actually went and saw the Roadrunner movie yes. together. We had the extra tickets, and you, and you said, I'm, I'm in, dude, let's I'm do in. it. I that actually- was a lot of fun. Yeah, I actually was uh, I was on a road trip and you said you had tickets and I was like, I zoomed down. I was I was in New York and I was like, tickets, I'm going. <laughs> Shut up, really? My, <laughs> luggage, my luggage was still in the car. It's like, you only live once. Let's go. <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah, he loves that so much. <laughs> I'm surprised you couldn't tell I had like road funk on me. I was just like, <laughs> you know. Oh, I thought you looked cheese. great. I was like, no, it was it was so much fun. What? I've heard so much about that movie since then. Have you have you watched yeah. it again by any chance? I have. I have. I'm like a glutton for punishment because the thing about that movie is it makes you feel all the feelings. Oh and, my gosh. And every time I go back and watch it, it's kind of like, you know, like pushing a bruise. So, <laughs> Jen, uh, did you see that movie? No, I never got to see it. And oh. I wanted to so badly. My husband and I tried, I think, three times. And every time they would be like, oh, sorry, we're sold out now. That's right. You guys went to go see it a few times. You just did. Yeah, we just could never get in. Man, I remember watching that. And like, and I love Anthony Bourdain so much. But it just was so sad to mm -hmm. see like just what he went through and how lonely he was. Right, right. With all well, these people around everywhere. Like he was just kind of alone. We, we never really, well, you know, the thing is, is that for all of us who were fans, there was that feeling that we somehow knew him personally. There yeah. was that connectivity because he was genuine, even in all of the, you know, the pain and, and the, you know, the hidden stuff. And I, I think that that's what made him accessible to, you know, a regular person. But yeah, no, I remember, you know, the day he died, I, I called off work. I went hiking. I couldn't... Yeah. Uh, you know, because it, it felt personal. Yeah, that was a sad one. I reread his book that day, Kitchen Confidential. I read yeah. a yeah. ton of times and that was the day I was like, I have to start this again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I had that massive moment when I, I think I read the next book. I don't know what book. I don't even remember the title of what it was. His The book after Kitchen Confidential. And he said, it's so funny because people walk up to me at all these events. I'm like signing books and they hand me like they'll reach in, they'll shake my hand. They'll hand me like a bag of white powder. And I'm like, what is like, why are you giving this? And there's like, hey, man, you know, hey, you're, you're one of us kind of a thing. Like, you know, and he's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> the, the whole Kitchen Confidential wasn't a book about like how to 
do the restaurant thing. It was a whole book about like what not to do. Like I live this crazy life because I'm an addict. I got out of it. Like I made it out. Right. Like my book wasn't a, you should go out and do a bunch of Coke and like, no, the whole thing is like, I did that. Don't do that. Like I, I maybe you can learn from my experiences and that blew my mind. Cause I always looked at the book as like, yeah, man, like he's the, he's the captain of the pirate ship. And yeah, yeah, yeah. That romanticized version of like the gritty, hard Lou Reed-esque yeah. you know, backside of, mm. of, you know, what goes on in the back of the house kind of a thing. And like, you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't intended to be the glorification of that. It was like, you know, and this wrecked me. And the, yeah. <laughs> to me, it was all matter of fact, like that scene, that scene in Kitchen Confidential where he's describing the whole service. That yeah. is like, maybe one of the best i like i'm an avid reader and i love that scene so deeply because it's just so fast it's just one after the other after the other it's just and he i listen to him read it a lot i love audiobooks and so even when he's reading it because he's he narrates it it's just it keeps going and going and going and i'm like oh my god like if anybody ever wants to know what it's like like just read that one chapter yeah, you instantly pick up that um, that that sense of adrenaline. Yeah, the kind of adrenaline that you get when you're you know you're on the line and you're in the weeds and yeah. you're turning the house and yeah, all of that and and you can't help but feel like you are right there in it and yeah. that that's the power of good writing, but it's also yeah. you know that relatability factor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love listening to books. I, I like to read too, but like listening to books, I just listened to the Dave Grohl book, The Storyteller. Everybody keeps talking about it and I know I need to get it. It was so amazing. <laughs> but hearing Dave Grohl read it, all the voice inflections and he does like, he's talking about somebody, he'll kind of do an impression about that person while he's doing it. And you reading it, I imagine you don't, you can kind of envision Dave Grohl's voice inflexing and changing, but sure. actually hearing him tell the story makes it to me, it's so much better. I, I like it more when it's read by the author. Same with Anthony Bourdain. Hearing him tell the story makes it come to life. Oh, absolutely. And you know, like I'm a I'm a physical book kind of person. I like to have the physical book of things, and and you know, I like to hold on to that. I, it, the next room over, my entire like family room is just lined with bookshelves. Yeah. Um, I, I hoard books. I but too. my husband. That, <laughs> you know what? Tough. It's part of the the package. Um, (laughs) The joy of being a single person. Like I'll have as many books as I want. Um, (laughs) He says emphatically. That's right. Take it or leave it. Part of the deal. Um, But hearing you guys describe like what it is to listen to the audiobook, it's kind of like, well, maybe I need to do both. Like audiobooks are great. I I love them because when I well, when I was doing inventory bar manager, I would like just throw on a book or a podcast and that was great. Mm-hmm. But now that I have toddlers that are, I have twins that are one, if they're <sighs> sleeping, I don't get a lot of chances to like sit and read, but yes. I can listen. So now they're great. Like now they're just the only way I read these days. Well, I, I think it's much like, you know, the way that we've learned to make space for podcasts in our lives. Um, you know, it's it's that same sort of thing. I'll put on a podcast while I'm cooking dinner. And, you know, the kids are like, oh, God, you know, but I'm like, listen, you know, in, in my house growing up, it was, you know, we had to listen to the to the nightly news. You had to listen to the national news and you have to listen to the to the local news. So my version of it is now, you know, you're going to have to listen to a podcast about some rando thing. Right. It, it's the same kind of thing. We makes we haven't learned to slow down. We just learned to include extra layers to our sensory 
perceptions. And so yeah. for, for me, it's, you know, being able to have that audio in the back. Yeah. One year old twins, bless you. Oh, <laughs> I've got three, but fortunately they all came at separate times. <laughs> <laughs> well, three is like, I can't be outnumbered. Like I'm, so that's impressive to me. I'm like two and one. Like no. everyone was always like, oh, are they your first? I'm like, yep, first and last. We're good. Like that's it. End of <laughs> end of that story and when you know you know but listen there's something about like when you get to two like that second one is actually the hardest i would add that third one to it and it's like you're already in it you're already rolling with it and like they learn to take care of each other it's they just already pretty touch and go if i added another person i'm like that might be a little too loose. Like, I don't know if I can rein that in at all. You know, I, I, I feel what you're saying, Courtney. When I had my first child, like, the first year was like, holy shit. Like, what Like, what did what, we get ourselves we into? <laughs> Sleep deprivation is real. And this is hard. And I don't communicate that well. And I learned that really fast that, yeah, yeah. dude, you got to talk. And then when the second one came, like three months into it, I was like, "Do we do we really ever complain about one of them?" Two, <laughs> like this is like exponentially harder when you have one that's running around while you're trying to do the stuff with the newborn. Oh, it was insane. My first, um, you know, she had a late diagnosis, but my my first is actually autistic. Okay. So my perception of what parenthood was going to be was based off of my first kid, who never slept unless I held her. And had to walk her the whole time. And I was still working as a pastry chef at that time. So working nights, coming home, taking care of her during the day, sleeping 45 minutes, you know, like that whole thing. And then, you know, five years later, we added the second one because I felt like I was finally ready. Like, if we we're going to do this, let's go ahead. I I'm in a space mentally where, I where I'm ready. And the second kid was totally different. <laughs> like Nobody tells you, like, they don't just because you're taking the same genetic material and, and creating some totally different person, totally different sleep habits and, and personality and everything. And so, you know, at that point, by the time we added the third, who was a surprise, it was just like, yeah, I mean, whatever, gonna... roll the dice, let's go with it. <laughs> I'm Jay so afraid of having twins. That, yeah. Yeah. I just like, I'm so scared I'd have twins again. Like I'm. Oh yeah. No, that's a whole, that's a yeah. whole other, that's. You, and I'm like, I can't. That's a professional grade parenting level that, most of us cannot possibly. Even. I just couldn't do it. I'm like, no, we're we're good. <laughs> There's okay. Plenty. So I'm gonna I'm gonna steer. I'm steering the ship here. Okay. And I'm gonna I'm gonna take. I'm gonna put us back on course for a second. Sorry, sorry, I, sorry. I could talk. I could. We could do this for hours. I really could. We could. But I I want I want to hear your story. I want to hear um, more about you because being the executive director at the store and what the store is is a really, really cool place, but let's go back. Like, are you a native Nashvilleian? Like what, what is your, what is your, where do you come from? I originally am from Pennsylvania. Okay. So, um, and, and I'm going to point out something too, cause I was listening to, to Andrew's interview last night from Argos. Yeah. And, and there was some point in the conversation where he was trying to talk about something about y'all and yins. And so you I'm going to clear. Yeah, no, it's yins. Y'all gotta yins. get this right. This is a. <laughs> I heard that and I was like, I need to tell you how this works. It's it's yins, and that okay, is so a, that's a Pittsburgh thing. So if can you, you use know that what... sentence? Like, do you just literally replace y'all? Yeah, with yins. 
So like, how are yins? Yeah. And if you're from Pittsburgh, you're a yinzer. Wow. There is an entirely other regional dialect in the southwestern side of Pennsylvania. And and that's, it's yins. <laughs> I, I listen to Howard Stern and they always say like up there, they say we're waiting online. Like if you're in line some, like I would say I'm standing in line. Right. They say we're standing online. Yes. And yes. I always think like, like on the internet, like, what are you doing? Like, what is this? <laughs> no, we're just standing online waiting for a beer. And I'm like, you're standing on, I don't get that. I don't know. whole different it, dialect. Yeah. There's a whole other, you know, I say crick instead of creek. I don't say wash, but if you hear wash, that's a, that's, that's a thing. Pittsburgh thing. Yeah. What are you trying to say? Wash. Wash. Oh. I'm going to wash my car. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah. Oh. yeah. I do yeah. know that from Howard. Like, I don't know what word you're. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a whole, it's got its own. So, so I'm from Northwest Pennsylvania. I grew up just south of Lake Erie. Okay. So snow belt, rural, Amish country, more cows than people, that whole thing. Um, and, and that's where I grew up. Um, I uh, got married very young. And on our first anniversary, we moved down to Murfreesboro. Um, and my husband at the time was enrolled to go to Middle Tennessee State. How old were you at this time? You're like 18? Uh, like tw 21, 22. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I knew everything at that point. So I was ready to, <laughs> to sign on for life. It's so funny because I also knew everything at that age. That's amazing. <laughs> Isn't it miraculous? We were like that. <sighs> I knew I had I had experienced everything. I was ready to to sign on and be a lifer. Like I, you know, I was clearly at the end of my life at that point. So I have failed because now I'm 42. I'm twice that age, and I feel like I know less than oh. I did when I was 21. Like I am nowhere close. Yeah, I'm I'm 44 at this point, and I know nothing. And my kids can attest to that because now that they're teenagers. They're they really, they're willing, they're, they're, they're willing to tell me that, you know, on a daily basis. I can't wait so. for that day. Oh, it's coming. Wait. <laughs> but it's true. And you know, there's some comfort in being able to say, wow, like there's so much more out there that, that I, I, you know, I know nothing. And, and that's a, it's a comfortable space to be in. Like I'm, I'm, you know, I'm ready for that. But yeah, no. So we moved down here. Um, and, uh, my husband got a recording industry and music degree like you do. And, um, that at the same time I was working for Aramark, I was the executive pastry chef at, um, middle Tennessee state. So I did campus dining. Oh yeah. Um, and I was there for about five years and what is that building? I went to MTSU. So there's a, what was the main that the whole thing has changed now. I'm trying to think. Oh, of I, yeah. I haven't been down there for a while. So the bakery at MTSU, we had a full scale bakery. Uh, we were one of the few um, scratch bakeries that was still in campus dining in, in the Southern region. Um, and we did probably 50% of what we were producing for the campus and catering services and everything was, was scratch baking. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it was it was pretty intense. Um, so and we were in the back of like uh, be like Macaulay Dining, if anybody's down on that campus. So it was just this one long room. And then I had a donut fryer outside the door um, and you had to be careful because if it, if it was cold, it was like right next to the loading dock and it, like, you know, your fat would freeze over. And it was 
It was insane. It was real rogue. Um, but at the time, like outside of everything that we were producing for the campus, which was, I think there were like, at that time, there was like 15,000, 20,000 students. That was about the time I was there. Really? I mean, I'm, if you're th two years older than me, I mean, I went to MTSU when I was like, I, I waited a year before I went. Okay. So, I mean, I don't, okay. you, I don't know how old you are. If you're 22, 23. Uh, I would have been, I would have been about 23, 24, about the time that I signed on for that. It's probably right before you were there. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And then uh, catering at that time was like a $1.3 million contract on top of that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah. Yeah. It was a lot. It was a lot of fun. Um, I got to, and you know, you get to meet interesting people because of it, especially on the catering side of things. So that would have been around the time that like Al Gore had lost the election. And so he came on as a, as a visiting professor for the campus. And so, uh, we had a standing thing where he liked my, my creme brulee. And so anytime he was coming in, he would, he would put a pre-order in for, for creme brulee. And I knew he was, you know, stopping by that sort of stuff. Right. And then anytime they would have the concerts and stuff, you were part of the, the catering ticket for what it was that the, the artists were going to be eating. That's cool. I saw, I saw Pearl Jam at the Murphy Center in 1994. <laughs> and it was the best. It was like the most amazing thing. I cried. Like I was like so big into Pearl Jam. They came on and I was just, I remember like tears. Like, oh. was, like I guess like that women when the Beatles came on, it was kind of my, <laughs> yeah. I, Steve Cropper came out during that show. Nobody cares about any of this stuff. Steve Cropper came out during the show and they sang Sitting on the Dock of the Bay at the concert. And to this day, it is the only time Pearl Jam has ever sang that song. And all the shows they've ever done, they've only done Sitting on the Dock of the Bay one time. And, and you got to be there for it. I have it on. I have the, the actual audio of it. It was a really pretty cool moment. I, I, honestly, if you go to school in Tennessee and you don't have some great musical memory, like where you really hear... Come yeah, on. yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you're pastry chef there. You're at MTSU and you're married and you're what, what, what do you get into next? What's your next foray in the industry? So the next thing that happened was we took a little sidestep back up to Pittsburgh. Uh, my husband wanted to go to law school. So he got accepted at Pitt and we moved up and I took a transfer through Aramark uh, okay. to Duquesne University, which is a private Catholic university up up in Pittsburgh. Um, and he did that for about a year. And that was probably the hardest job I've ever had. Really? Why? Um, it's totally different kitchen culture. And uh, I stepped in to a bakery where all of the all of the guys had been there for a long time. And they had all like they were all enough to be my dad and kind of resented the fact that I walked in and was management. That kitchen was really unusual too, because if you were hourly, you were union. If you were management, you were not. God, that's a tough place for a young leader to be in. Yeah, yeah, it was intense. It was intense. Um, and, you know, that was the kind of kitchen where, you know, a lot of rough, grizzled old chefs that would throw pans of, hot food at you if they were pissed off. And um, I got I got backed into corners a lot. And 
that was that was really the only kitchen I can say seriously where I experienced true harassment. Mm. Um, so it was, it was intense. And there were a couple of things that, you know, there was like a shooting on campus that I missed by, by six muffins. <laughs> That's how I tell that story. Um, it was, it was just so really, that was a rough job. I can imagine what, when, why, what, what happened when you left there? Was it like a ceremonious, like, uh, no, no, that one was, it was just such a relief. I put in a year, I gave it a year. Um, and it was just, um, you know, I just, I put in my letter quietly and I walked out the door and the other guy that I was co-managing the bakery with called me up and he was like, I didn't, I didn't realize that you were leaving. And I said, listen, I, I took this job cause I'm trying to pay the bills just like everybody else. Uh, you know, I'm trying to take care of my family. I never stepped into this with the intention of stepping on your shoes. And he goes, well, I, I thought they hired you on to replace me. And I was like, dude, I'm here because my husband's in law school. Like, I'm not staying. There's not. And he goes, so I just spent this whole last year making your life hell. And what an asshole. Oh, yeah. Well, and he was you know the what? kind of guy that was like, you know, he, he had daughters and he was all the time talking about how proud he was of them and everything. And, and I told him, I said, listen, Al, your daughters are going to go into the workforce and they're going to deal with guys like you. So if nothing else, learn from the fact that, you know, women in the workplace are just trying to pay the bills too. We're not here to, you know, we're, we want to be part of the team. Well, I think that insecurity as a leader, I, I'm constantly looking for the person that can replace me. I want to hire somebody who's as good as me that can do the job. Like I, I don't, I want to, I want talent on my team because that's how you execute at a really high level. And to be, a leader be like well you're coming in to take my like just that insecurity and then and then to take that out on somebody for a year and then to to say that out loud to say oh i thought you're coming for my job so i was a total dick like you could have had that conversation on day two yeah you, oh. like you could have said hey i feel i'm feeling a little because you're really good at your job i'm feeling a little insecure that did they hire you to take over my job because you're great that's a big awareness of feelings though and like that's I mean, you, you have that now, but you wouldn't have had that no. even four or five years ago. You know, it's, that's so hard to, to actually admit to self and then yeah. to admit to others. Well, part of like true leadership is being able to be vulnerable yeah. and also be able to say, you know, I am replaceable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The moment that you create this space for yourself where you feel like you are irreplaceable, mm -hmm. uh, you're not working with the team anymore. You're not leading. You're out there for yourself. Yeah. Uh, and, and everything that you're creating is, is to make you feel good and prop you up. That's not leadership. That's mm -hmm. not building a legacy. Not at all. And so you <clears throat> going through that, they you know, they always say like through these really tough experiences, you, you get calluses, but you grow. What's the thing, what's the like, most important thing that you took out of that, that you've taken on for the rest of your life? What is the, cause you learn everything from these experiences. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, obviously like just, what it is that we were talking about, like what, what leadership should look like, how you want to make your team with you instead of you have to be front of the pack and being the, the center of attention and, and you know, that it's all about you. Um, that's not leadership. That's not building a team. That's not legacy. And that's not, it, that's not um, appreciating the skills and abilities that somebody else brings when they walk in the door. 
Yeah. Um, and just that level of like making sure that you're touching base with, with everybody that you're working with on what their comfort level is, because like in that, that setting, that was a really corporate setting. It was a major company. Oh yeah. Uh, and, and you weren't really allowed to be a, a human being. You were there to be a machine. There's a system and a process for every single thing you do throughout the day. Every minute of your day, there's a process for it. Yeah. There's not yeah. a lot of, oh, I got to think outside the box and how to solve this. It's, oh, no, look at page 12. That's how you solve it. Right, 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 I mean, right. Everything right. that you, at Airmark, I mean, in a company like that. Yeah, yeah. And don't get me wrong. They were a really great, you know, company in general to work for. Like, I appreciate the opportunity. I learned a lot. Yeah, there were a lot of great chefs that that came along beside me and, and you know, were willing to mentor me and, and you know, teach me and, and help me grow and give me opportunities. That particular placement was real bad. And what it led me to do was then jump out into small cafes and small private bakeries and privately owned small business. Um, it, it, you know, I kind of just decided to do the opposite in terms of the, the business side of things. And that was that was a fantastic experience too. I mean, sometimes your paycheck would bounce, but you got to be creative and, you know, you got to try new things. And um, there was a lot more value placed on you as a, as a human being. You could bring your personality with you. And that was really important because those were um, opportunities where they wanted your, your creative drive and they wanted your personality to be a part of what it was that was being created. And I love that. That's, yeah. that's, that's, I think that's something I should, I strive for. I want that every day. Like that's just something that, that, that makes independently owned and operated restaurants unique. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, just the characters that you end up bringing in the door, what's going on in the back of the house and who those people are, those people become your family. They do. I feel fortunate enough that I know this podcast, I get to to bring a bunch of those people back on and, and tell some of those stories is a lot of fun. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No, those were great experiences. What brought you back to Nashville? So Pittsburgh, you went back to Pittsburgh. Now you're, when did you come back? So we came back, um, the economy crashed. 2008, right, 2009. Right. Right. As he was graduating from law school. And so his, uh, his job offers got pulled. Nobody was hiring young lawyers. Uh, everybody was paring down their their workforces. And if you didn't already have a client list, they didn't really need you. You were just dead weight. So uh, he had had a job offer for him in Pittsburgh. That got pulled. And we were like, let's go back to Nashville. Uh, he had a, a buddy from college who had also gone to law school someplace else. And so they decided they were going to, you know, make their own uh, firm. And we we loved Nashville. After after you live here and you go someplace else, then you realize like what is so great about being here. What um, was that? What if you could describe that thing? What would it be? Oh, um, what was the allure of Nashville? It's the hospitality. It's that you know, and and you know, this was back. This was back at the you know the beginning of of the two thousands. So it was um, just the fact that you could smile at somebody and not have them be like, you know what? Um, yeah, it was like, just that, you know, it still had that small town vibe to it. It still was like a warm and friendly place and you were still welcome there. Um, I think we're kind of moving into this change right now. Where it's, I was going to say, do you think we're losing that? I'm really afraid that we are. Mm -hmm. I really am. Um, 
especially now that I'm in the, the nonprofit side of the food industry. Um, I can't wait to get into that. Yeah. So especially when we start talking about what, you know, what homelessness looks like and what affordable family housing looks like and, yeah. and who's getting pushed out. And and yeah, so there's there's um, some aspects that I think are changing in a not great way. I'm, I'm concerned about. I guess well, I think we should I think we should definitely get into that really like let, let's I don't want to like zoom through your life, but I think that's a major thing that's going on that I don't think is talked about enough. And I think your perspective is really right there in the middle of it, right? Yeah, well, so the reason that it's on the forefront of my brain right now is um in this last week, and I don't know if anybody else has seen these announcements, maybe it's just important to me, but um some of the nonprofits in the area are closing down the ones that deal specifically with hunger in the homeless community and some of the less well-funded organizations that have been here and have been plotting through and have been really doing the work, um, their, their real estate, the land that they're on, the has been, has been sold out from underneath them. Hmm. Um, so the little pantry that could, um, which has been operating for about 12, 13 years now. They're shutting down in March. Who is it? Who'd you say? The little pantry that could. The little pantry that could. They're up in North Nashville. And um, that's just, oh gosh, just an amazing organization that basically was the the brainchild of um, this woman, Stacy, who really has a heart for the homeless population. And when I say it has a heart, doesn't just like, you know, create an organization where people can come and get food. She created an organization where she goes out into the encampments and sits down and has face-to-face -face conversations with people and has built trust and has built consistency and has given, um, you know, a place and a voice and, uh, you know, a place where people can come and get showers and do their laundry and get fed and talk to other people and just, you know, let their shoulders drop for a minute and, and feel safe. Um, and this, this push in Nashville to erase homelessness without solving the the cause of it, the root cause of it, is is just heartbreaking. Because they're going through and raising all of these camp encampments because people are getting upset about seeing the homeless people. No, they're not upset. Them, if they don't see them, they don't exist. Oh, yeah. There was a meeting not too long ago. Um, and I'm not going to name names, but it was a city government meeting and a city official got up and had the nerve to say that, that Nashville doesn't have a homeless problem. Hmm. I would Which, argue that. Yeah. That I would. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, as we have people moving in and, um, they don't understand, um, who these people are or why they're there or even, what our homeless people are like. Um, it's just, it's a different, it's very upsetting to me. It's very upsetting to me. Well, and so, you know, Little Pantry that Could is shutting down. Open Table is in trouble right now. And that's a real estate issue as well. Um, they're losing their spaces because those spaces are getting sold to, to developers. Um, and so, um, you know, there's a couple of shelters that are shutting down. There's a couple of uh, pantries that are shutting down. And a lot of it comes back down to the real estate grabs that are going on. 
Big white houses. Mm-hmm. Condo, white condo, houses. condo, condo, mm. condo. All for 600000 or more. Oh, I mean, listen. Bargain I, price. I'm mm-hmm. still renting. Oh, we are too. We're, I told you, twins, and my mom is with us right now. Five of us in a two-bedroom, two-bath. Because, like, the idea of buying, there's nothing that's worth the cost they're asking. Like, I mean, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a single mom with mm-hmm. three kids. Mm-hmm. And I'm out in the suburbs right now and I've been renting a space, but you know, anytime that the landlord decides that, that it's worth it to sell it. Cause I mean, the, the value of the house is more than doubled in the last 10 years since we've been here. So what part of town do you live in? I'm out in the weird space. That's not quite Smyrna off of Haywood. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we're not Smyrna. We're not Antioch. We're, we're just, kind of out there in the burbs. I, I feel like I'm not Bellevue. I'm not Franklin. I'm just kind of in this weird, I'm not Fairview. I'm just kind of in this weird little area too. That's none of that. Yeah. 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 But so let's the store, let's talk about the store. Cause I think this okay. talks about a little bit how you're so knowledgeable about this issue and I want to get back to it, but let's talk about the store. How did you hook up? How did you link out? How did you Brad Paisley is he, he decided to start the store with his wife, Kimberly, right? Right. And it's based off a store in California. Santa Barbara. Yeah. Santa Barbara, the unity store. Is that what it's called? Unity shop. Yeah. Unity yeah. shop. And then they brought it to Nashville. Tell, tell us about that. Okay. Oh, where do we start? Okay. So wherever, wherever you want. Um, I guess it's going to make more sense if I go chronologically. We are going to take a short break so I can tell you about Cytex. Cytex is celebrating 60 years of service. You can go right now to their YouTube channel and subscribe, but you can also take a virtual tour of their facility. And I don't know about you, but I'm always interested in really cool things like that. A linen factory, like how does that work? The, the virtual tour is really, really cool. Lots of other videos on there. There's a video that might contain this podcast. It might not. So go check some out and see what you think. They are also right now have a brand new mesh back oil resistant chef shirt. It is absolutely amazing. It's moisture wicking and it is something that every chef in the city, every line cook needs and you can only get it through Cytex. You need to give Ross Chandler a call at 270-823-2468 or visit him at cytex-corp.com. You know, I also want to talk about Sharpier's Bakery. Erin Moso took over for her dad seven years ago after he passed away, and he originally started 36 years ago serving the Nashville restaurant community. Fresh baked bread delivered daily. It kind of sounds perfect, doesn't it? And they are local, locally owned, woman-owned company that you could definitely support today. Erin Moso said, she told me, said, hey, have them call my cell phone, 615 615- 319-6453. She says, I'd love to just talk to anybody who's thinking about fresh bread, who'd like to have fresh bread. She wants to bring you samples. She wants to talk about what you're currently doing. She is in it to help you win. And it's amazing. Uh, I use them in both of my restaurants and she just does the best job. So check them out at sharpies.com. That's C-H-A-R-P-I-E-R-S.com. And follow them on the socials at Sharpies Bakery. And that's sharpies.com. Do it. Okay. So I came back to Nashville. Um, 
and the economy had crashed and I was five months pregnant with our second kid. So big as a house. And my husband was trying to find clients so that he could pay the bills. And I couldn't get hired because it looked like I was going to give birth in aisle three at any moment. <laughs> um, and so uh, we had to go on assistance. Um, we had to go on on Snap. We had to go on WIC. We had 10 care um, for our daughter and and, you know, all of that. And so uh, that began my foray into what it was to utilize public assistance um, and, and, you know, kind of uh, dispel all of the stereotypes that I had grown up with of who utilizes these services and why and, and how the whole thing works and then be on the receiving end of all of the stigma that goes with that. So um, being in a grocery store, getting your groceries, you got it you know, a toddler with you, you're sticking out to next Tuesday and you got your groceries and you pull out your EBT card and suddenly, you know, the people in the line behind you have thoughts about what it is that you're buying. And and God forbid that it be, you know, anything that they don't deem necessary because now they feel that they are paying for your groceries. Mm -hmm. And so they have a right to say something to you. And um, that was just a, you know, this ongoing thing. And, and if, anybody's ever used WIC vouchers, WIC vouchers are very specific as to what it is that you can purchase and um, the weight and the amount and the size and, you know, the brand and everything. And for the sake of your cashier, you know, if you're smart, you'll line it all up in, in accordance to how the, the voucher is broken down so that they can scan it. Uh, and God help you if you go over or you don't have the right brand or anything. It's very, it's a very complicated system. Potentially embarrassing. Massively. Yeah. I mean, massively. Uh, and I got to the point where, you know, my anxiety was so high because of it that I would start grocery shopping in the middle of the night. My anxiety, hearing you tell that story, I'm like, sitting there going, I, I don't, I, oh. yeah. If you know, if you're ever in a situation where you're out in public and you're aware of the people around you and the way that they feel, if you're an empath in any way, shape or form, and you know that you are holding somebody up or making somebody uncomfortable or making somebody do extra labor, you know, then yeah, all of that, that builds that, that tension and that, that sense of anxiety and stuff. So I would, I would start grocery shopping at two and three and four o'clock in the morning. Wow. Uh, because just for me, it would just, there were just times where I would just shut down. Um, and so, uh, this went on for like 10 years. Wow. Um, and in amongst that time, then I had gotten divorced and had gone back to work because um, I had been a stay at home mom who was trying to support uh, my husband's career. And we had had a surprise third child. And so I was just trying to manage the household and make his career possible and navigate the behind the scenes managerial things that go on in, in running a household. Um, so we got divorced and um, I went back to work. And so the first thing that I did was I tried to find a job that was, you know, real flexible and accommodating. And so I went to work for Amazon. Mm-hmm. And um, that was a really um, surprisingly fantastic opportunity for all of the stories that we hear about what's going on behind the scenes with Amazon and, and all of those things. And I won't even get into that. Uh, it what it did create for me was the opportunities to climb and to create a stable household for my kids and be financially secure and um, 
So that was actually when I was able to get us off of any kind of assistance and, and not need SNAP and not need the EBT card and, and get them insurance and be able to do that. And so within the three years that I was with Amazon, I started out as an associate part-time and I left as an L4 manager. Wow. Yes. Uh, and that's just about grabbing the opportunities as they come. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but uh, so the funny thing about that was, so I just taken a new promotion with Amazon. It was November of 2019 and I was flipping through something and an indeed ad came up, uh, not to be like, you know, use indeed it works, but this, this is how it happened. Um, this ad came up and it was uh, a job opening for a new nonprofit in Nashville. And all it said was that it was a free grocery store to help assist families in need um, and, you know, address nutritional insecurity and that there was like this whole new model that they wanted to do. And it didn't say who was starting it and it didn't say where it was and it, you know, none of that, just, nonprofit free grocery store and they were looking for an operations manager. And so I was like, I just took this great promotion. Uh, I've got stock options now with Amazon. Um, I have Those are a, worth something a little bit. Listen, I had insurance that specifically addressed the fact that my daughter has autism. Hmm. Like I was, that's hard to give up. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, what what is the temptation with corporate work? It's the fact that they're big enough that they can really fully give you like the benefits and the, you know, those support structures. And it's great. Yeah. Um, so it was one of those things, though, where it was like I couldn't stop talking about it. And my friends were getting to the point where like they were like, listen, either apply for this job or shut the fuck up. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> you know, one or the other, cause like, we are done talking about this with you. Like you're trying to like sell all of us to apply for it. And really you're the one that has all of the, the qualifications you apply for it. I love when my wife does that. She goes, stop selling me. Just go fucking do it. Yeah. yeah. You should have okay. get off the pot. I'll stop. Really. I'll stop. My bad. <laughs> she sees right through my, in a heartbeat. Anyway. Yes. So home that comment. So I, uh, I sent in an application. I sent in a resume. And, you know, I, I grew up in retail. I knew food service. Uh, I understood hospitality, understood customer service. Uh, you know, I had all of these things and, and I, you know, I cared. And the and, end user experience sounds like. Yeah. And, you know, I kind of, I kind of went into that a little bit on my resume, but I didn't really, you know, there's not a real space for, Hey, I used to be a, a well yeah. mom, you know, kind of thing on there, but just, you know, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in this. This is intriguing to me. So three days later, they gave me a call. So, okay, it, it you got to remember it with Amazon, November and December are top tier level 16 hour a day peak because mm-hmm. you're, you're doing all of the holiday rush. And so there was like an hour that I would have a break in between shifts. That was my lunch. And they're like, come in and do an interview. And I was you know, uh, so like I got this call from the store and, and a couple of board members and they're like, just come in and do an interview. We'd love to talk to you. You know, we're, we're trying to get the ball rolling on this and, and get open. And so, you know, here's our time frame. You know, can you come in? So I snuck out during lunch, you know, because the deal is, you know, you don't want your bosses knowing that you're that you're looking around. It's like getting caught cheating. You don't want to be. 
and that's really what it felt like. That it felt like I was being unfaithful. Um, so I snuck out and I met with a couple of board members and they were fantastic. And, uh, you know, they got into, they wanted to know the motivations for why it was that I had applied and did I know anything about nonprofit work and, you know, that sort of stuff. And so I just, you know, I broke it down for him. I explained to him what my experience had been as a mom and being on the, the receiving end of different services and what that felt like. And just the fact that I felt ready as a human being to find a way to give back. Like I wanted to do something that was a little more important than just make sure that people's Amazon packages got delivered to them. So I left, went back to work, finished my shift, uh, got out to the car and there was a message waiting on my phone. And it was one of the, one of the uh, individuals that I had met with earlier in the day. And basically the gist of it was, Hey, we think you're great. Um, but would you consider the executive director position instead of the operations position? Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, like, uh, so I basically <laughs> I called back and said, it. I mean, you know, um, I basically called back and asked them if they had called the wrong number and if they were crazy. <laughs> wow. Are you nuts? Um, and I said, you know, you're taking a big risk. I've never done any of this. So not only have I not ever worked for a nonprofit, but like you want me to the helm the ship, like, are, are you know, are you crazy? That's the only response that there is for that sort of thing. And we talked it over and um, they were just the, the thing about having an organization where there's a board of leaders is that what what we have is a board of visionaries. You have people who have gotten to a point in their career and their profession and their vocations where they have they have had both successes and failures and they have enough experience to have vision. Yeah. Um, and so that's really what my board is. And so for them to put the faith in me to take the risk to start a new organization with a brand new leader, that's a lot. So you're the integrator. Uh, what's that? You're the integrator. Yes. So, um, so uh, I had about five interviews total with the organization. Wow. Because you got to meet committees and you got to meet different, you know, and everybody has their own angle on what it is that they're hoping that this organization is going to do. And in amongst that, I'm sitting in a meeting one day with the executive committee and uh, I'm in a building downtown. And I hear the door open on the side and somebody comes rushing into the room with a hood on and sits down at the table. Sorry, I'm late. Pulls his hood back and it's Brad Paisley. And you're like, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> so that's who the founders are. Because we had gotten into this whole thing and nobody really mentioned where it was coming from. I was two or three meetings in before I realized that it was Brad and Kim Paisley that were kind of the motivation behind all of this. So, uh, okay, so that's how I got in. The reason that the store exists in the first place is, you know, Brad and Kim have worked in various uh, areas of, uh, and I don't wanna use the word charity, I hate that word, but nonprofit work and social programs and community supports. Okay. Um, they, you know, both grew up in small towns 
and they still have that heart for various community organizations. So there was a holiday where they were out on the West Coast and you know what how they tell the story and I wasn't there so I can't confirm but how they tell the story is the boys were acting up and they were being kind of a pain in the butt. And uh, Kim kind of was like, listen, we, we need to get them plugged in and give them some perspective and um, just on, on where they stand and what their privilege is and, and how, um, how blessed they really are. A little wake up call. So uh, they asked around, somebody pointed them to the Unity shop and said, here, go volunteer here. You know, it's a really great organization. Um, they've been there for a hundred years. There's this woman, Barbara Tolson, uh, she'll get you plugged in. And so what it was, was this free grocery store out in Santa Barbara that has, it's not just a grocery store. They're, they've got uh, clothing, they do toys, they do toiletry, they do, they do, they just, they have this block of space and, you know, it's all volunteer labor, but it's set up like a retail situation. Okay. So it's not a food pantry like you go in and somebody hands you a box of food and you walk out. You get to actually do the shopping. You do the shopping. You yeah. grab a cart. You you go and pick what it is that you want. And, uh, you know, it's a fully staffed kind of retail setup, but everybody there is a volunteer. And there's, there's their cash register, but the food is free. Um, you know, there's just, it's this whole thing. It's a very normalized experience. Yeah. And so they were just blown away by this whole concept of the whole thing because Kim had grown up delivering meals on wheels with her mom and they had worked soup kitchens together. And, you know, they had seen that side of the pantry experience or the, uh, not the pantry, but like the, like the food community shelter kind of concept um, that everybody has kind of seen one way or another. Um, so they really just got plugged in. They started asking questions. They started, you know, repeat volunteering, that sort of thing. And around 2017, they were like, why are we not doing this in Nashville? This is our hometown. This is where we live. Like, I don't want to have to keep waiting until we have a trip out to L.A. to have a chance to, to plug in and do this. We need this here. So started gathering up people who were in the food industry one way or another, people who had experience with nonprofit work, industry leaders, visionaries, friends. Um, and started organizing what this concept was going to be and what it would look like. And, you know, I mean, the important thing about what they did was they recognized that just because um, the organization looks a certain way out in Santa Barbara, you got to tailor food and service and, and your outreach to the community that you're in. Yeah. So, um, you know, what, what you see at the store is going to be a little bit different than what you see at Unity Shop, but the inspiration is, is there. And so they shopped around for some locations um, and they settled with, not settled, that's a terrible word. That's not what I mean. They found a great spot on 12 South. They found a great spot on 12 South that was owned by Belmont because Brad is a Belmont University alum. Okay. I did not know that. Yeah. So Brad went to Dr. Fisher and said, listen, here's the idea that I have, but also I wanna tie it into the fact that Belmont University students have to have a certain amount of volunteerism credits in order to graduate. 
And I remember volunteering and I remember not really always getting a whole lot out of it. And I would like to offer a different experience for the student body and a different opportunity. And I want to do it, you know, in a in a place that's really close to the campus so that they can just be here all of the time and, and kind of integrate into this opportunity. And Dr. Fisher greenlit it and we built a brand new building on Belmont's campus and we leased that space from them right now. Um, and, you know, if, if anybody is down in that area, you'll see there's massive construction going on on, on Belmont University's campus. Um, we kind of slipped in before all of those big projects got greenlit. So we have this little pocket of space that, you know, used to be a parking lot. Uh, and we're kind of lucky to be in that area right now. Um, so that's how that whole, like, why we're there um, and, and what the background of uh, how the organization got, got organized and formulated. Wow. So that's a, that's a lot. And Jen, what are your thoughts? You haven't said much here. What do you got? <laughs> I know my kids are quacking in the background, so it's, I'm sorry. Um, they learned how to say quack the other day. Oh. <laughs> so much better than no. Yeah. They haven't learned that word in any capacity. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I love that. I know. Are you, do you know your Enneagram? I'm an eight. You're an eight. So is Brandon. I'm an eight. Hey! <laughs> um, Enneagrators unite. Yeah, that's right. I'm a four and I feel like I'm always searching for purpose and I always, I hate being misunderstood. Like those are the real traits of mine that really, and so listening to your story, I'm in a transitional phase right now and listening to your story is just really like you found the rainbow, right? Like you went through all of this kind of gnarly situations and tough things and you, you pulled yourself up and then you found the thing that was right for you where you can tell you feel a real sense of purpose and you can tell that you really love what you do and you love the community that you serve. And I, I agree with you. I remember I used to work at Disney world and I never saw a homeless person. Right. Like they're not on, they're not in Kissimmee, Florida at all and, or celebration Florida either. And so then I would go back to school in Tallahassee where there are, and you really are just a few decisions away from that. Like nobody is so far removed from that. And I think people don't understand that fragility in our day-to-day -day lives of like, you could be here, you have to, you know, and especially growing up in the South and in Nashville here and in the Bible Belt and things like that, the idea of like, this is Jesus, right? Like this is what he came as. These are the people you serve. This is how you do it. You wash feet, you feed the hungry, you love sex workers, like all of these things. Yeah, and I, yeah. I, I love that there, for all the nonprofits closing, which is awful, there are so many popping up too, and they're trying to serve really niche markets. And I just, I hope that we're getting to a place where we're seeing the value in all lives and not just the dollar amount that they can produce and create into society. And we're just seeing them as humans. And so I love that you feel that way and you see that. And I love that Brad Paisley and Kim does too. Like that's, that's a special thing that I don't, I think should be an inherent trait for people and is not. Yes, 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 yes. Amen. Preach it, sister. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> here's the thing, like, okay, the whole aspect of uh, how close anybody is, like when you said a couple decisions away from being in a, in a bad situation, mm -hmm. a lot of times there are not even decisions that we make. It's the right. economy yeah. or it's, you know, mm -hmm. so when the pandemic hit, mm -hmm. 
we had this whole other group of individuals, especially from the entertainment industry and the hospitality industry that were suddenly without any means of supporting themselves in a, in a town that you never in a million years would have thought that that would happen, that you would ever lose your job in. You know, partnering with with CMA because they have all of these people from, you know, the studios and the recording industry that no longer have any work and no gigs to go to because nobody's touring and needing to make sure that they're fed. Uh, you know, just there has been this kind of uh, reawakening on on certain people's radar of how quickly you can go from being financially secure and stable and and able to take care of yourself to needing assistance. Mm -hmm. um, and those are the people that are turning around and saying, OK, um, when I get when I get back on my feet, I want to turn around and give back. Mm -hmm. um, I want to get plugged in. I want to be a part of the solution. I think there's also this change in mindset that's generational of, um, you know, I grew up in church. Mm -hmm. I spent two years in seminary. Wow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's a story. Um, <laughs> like, well, we don't have enough time for that. Wow. Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a lot. Uh, I, you know, so I grew up in that, that, you know, Bible belt mm -hmm. Christian mindset of you're supposed to turn around and serve. Um, and now as people are moving away from organized religion and, and organized church service, and the churches are starting to become smaller and diminish in population and support, mm -hmm. it's people who are stepping up and saying, I see a need in the community and I want to start an organization that addresses this. And that's how nonprofits really start. Mm -hmm. um, it's no longer that we're we're being organized around religious organizations. Um, it's starting to be the nons, the non-denominational, non-religious, um, but spiritual individuals in the demographic that are looking at things and saying, we need to address this problem because the government can't. But we have these people that are falling through the cracks and there's a better way to solve this problem. And I'm going to step up. I'm going to be the person that fills that gap. I'm going to be the person with a vision that creates a space for the people who are underserved. Mm -hmm. Wow. You know, it's like I remember Kevin, the guy um, who's the director or the owner. I, I, oh, yeah. For Big Table. For Big Table, mm -hmm. uh, which is new to Nashville. Yeah. And he was a former. He was a preacher. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think he saw what you were talking about, like just the diminishing. And he channeled what he did and he said i want to go help a specific demographic let's go to restaurants and let's help people let's help people who have mental health issues let's help people who have uh Great. drug and alcohol addictions Let, let's just let's go in and help them and that's been their mission this, yeah well and and uh, what it allows like what the power of a small nonprofit is that we get to kind of create our own rules of mm -hmm. who it is that we're going to serve yeah you're not jumping through these giant hoops of these people are okay, but we can't take these people because there's a liability issue with the insurance or, you know, we're, we, we can't hire on the staff for, you know, whatever. So yeah, it's, it's, it all comes down to an individual who has an opportunity or a vision or sees a need and jumps in and says, I can create a space for someone else and take care of them. Mm -hmm. um, like, one of the one of the board members that helped formulate the store is Becca Stevens from Thistle Farms. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
So when you want to talk about somebody who recognizes people's value and their dignity and the need to build a transformational but safe space for them so that they can then have the opportunity to grow and heal and get better and, and move on and move up like her, her concepts and, and her support for our organization was, was instrumental in us building a space that promotes self-sufficiency, but also uh, protects dignity. And that's the whole real underlying mission of the store. Mm-hmm. It's not just, Hey, we want to uh, have a conversation about poverty And it's not just, hey, we want to make people feel good while they shop. It's about providing a space where people's dignity is protected, where they can then start to have hope again, uh, and that uh, their value as a human being is recognized from the moment that they walk in the door, the moment that they no longer need our services. Mm And in in all of that, you know, the programming is designed so that um, it's not just dignity in that space. It's dignity of choice. It's it's uh, providing options so that people and then allowing us to normalize these conversations about poverty and who's experiencing it and what people who need these services actually look like versus what we have been told look like. I, I talk about this uh, on a podcast we did. We're going to put out Monday with um, Corey Coleman, just about the alcoholism in my yeah. my world of being an alcoholic. Just the perception of people thinking about alcoholic is typically Otis and Mayberry. You know, this drunk who's in a tank somewhere, and it's like, no, they look like me, and they look like a bunch of other people around here. And this perception is like, I just want to open a dialogue to you know, just to normalize some conversations that people don't have to be afraid to talk about this stuff. It's, it's okay. Like, let's continue to talk about it. Well, it's like when I needed to, to apply for food stamps, I grew up thinking that people who couldn't provide for their own families were lazy and worthless and fell into certain demographics. 70% of the people who utilize SNAP and EBT are working class white families. Wow. I didn't know that. I, had no uh, idea. I, mean, I didn't have any other preconceived. I didn't know what the demographic was. The majority of the people who need assistance are families who are trying to balance, uh, you know, they're trying to be dual income, but they have children in the home and they're trying to figure out how to pay for childcare, work a job and, and uh, you know, pay all of the bills. And as food costs go up and as housing goes up, and as the price of childcare goes up, which it has to, because those are skilled workers taking care of people's children that have master's degrees and deserve to get paid a living wage. Yeah. Do you look at all of those things? There's no way really for a family with children to live off of one income and be able to pay all of the bills. Yeah. So the, the majority of the people who need additional services are people who are working their butts off trying to make, you know, ends meet and are one to two paychecks away from being homeless, being destitute, being in a, and that financial insecurity snowballs, you know, you, you can't pay your utilities, your landlord kicks you out. Now you're homeless. You don't have insurance, you know, and it, it spirals. 
I've never understood like why they charge you thirty six dollars if you bounce a check. Like the people that don't have the money get charged. Don't have the money. money. The number of times that I've had that conversation with with a bank, you know. Yeah, like come on, man. Like I clearly don't have the extra thirty six dollars or the extra hundred and twelve dollars because I did three different checks that didn't. The, I had the money. My for the paycheck came checks, in, but you didn't cash my paycheck before you paid my bills. You paid my bills and then cash my paycheck so that you could make $36 off of each one of those bounce checks. And now I look like an asshole, but I'm not. You notice all the big towers downtown all have bank names on the top of them. There are people <laughs> who profit from other people suffering. Mm -hmm. And so, so as we've gone through this, test. yeah, I know, but that's my everyday reality. The yeah. number of people who have benefited from this pandemic versus the number of people who have now like that, that class divide mm -hmm. has only gotten greater. So I feel like I don't believe that the problems we're facing countrywide are new. I think right. people are just, they're more heightened now because we have access to information and access to other people in a way that we did not back in the day sure. um, before social media, before new 24 hour news cycles and things like that. So um, my best friend works in nonprofit in Florida, and I think she's just saintly. Um, but I I struggle sometimes. Like I work a few jobs. My husband we own a restaurant. I have two kids. It's a like there's a lot right, and there's all of this need out there. And sometimes there's so much need that you're like I don't know where to start. So how how can people help? How can people help the store? What can how can people get involved? So um, we have a, a couple of different types of volunteer opportunities. First of all, like we love to get people plugged in because until you until you get into the building and and get to work in the space, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's hard to explain what it is that we're doing or or uh, it, it kind of allows you to have that opportunity to kind of see it firsthand. And that's really important. So uh, we work through with uh, Hands on Nashville. Uh, you know my sister, don't you? Do I? Her name is Stephanie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> cool, cool. That's my sister. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Nice. Yes. Uh, two and two. Being, okay, I get it. She's tall. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think I've seen her outside of like, you know, the desk, but okay. Oh, well. So yeah, hands on Nashville. Uh, we work with them. Uh, there's a couple of different types of volunteer opportunities. You might not be a people person who wants to be face to face with people. We have a, a, an opportunity where you can come in and help us do inventory uh, or you can come in on Wednesdays and help us stock shelves and clean all of the produce areas and, and get prepped for service. Um, and then Thursday, Friday and Saturday is when we open the doors for our customers to come in and shop. So those are opportunities where you are, again, stocking shelves, uh, but bagging groceries, running our cash register. People think it's funny that we have a register. We do. There's no money exchanged. There's no money on site, but you still get a receipt when you leave. Mm -hmm. um, and we do that for a number of reasons. Uh, I'm going to some other time. Um, and, you know, just carrying groceries out to the car. Uh, we have a, a greeter position where there's somebody that stands at the door and, hey, how are you? And this is where you go, you know, to fill out your information. And hey, if your kids want to go play in the children's area or here's a token for the penny pony, 
Um, and they're just, and that position is really great because uh, we have had this outpouring of interest from our uh, retired community. So this is where the grandmas and grandpas of Nashville have come out and have taken over that position and get to have this interaction with our families and just be warm and welcoming and friendly. Um, and I, I love the people who sign up repeatedly for that particular position. They're just, they're, they're a special group. Um, so if you're the type of person that you don't want to bag groceries and you don't want to run a register, but you have a great smile and you can be friendly to strangers, like sign up for the greeter position. I, for half a second there, I thought you were going to say that the uh, grandparent community was the ones riding the penny pony. You said then did they give the quarter drive the penny pony? And that's where the Listen, I have a whole what is this? album on my phone <laughs> of people who have ridden Sandy the penny pony, taken her for a ride. She's pretty sweet. Um, awesome. <laughs> it would surprise you who else jumped on the, on the back of that horse. It's pretty great. <laughs> I would break it by the way. I do like, no, 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 no. We have had some, some full on adults on there. Um, it's a, it's a Brandon's like two adults though. He's like six, six. <laughs> <laughs> like 265 pounds. There's like Listen, a, I'm a six weight foot. Limit, you can't, you're not going to scare me. You're six foot. Oh my goodness. Yeah. She's tall. I'm Everyone's tall. so tall. I drank my milk. I'm a country kid. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to do uh, part two of this interview where we learn your seminary story. Mm. <laughs> it's going to be a whole hour that we're going to do. Courtney goes to Bible college. Yeah. Courtney goes to Bible uh, yeah. college. Yeah. It's a, there, listen, I mean, in terms of like career, vocation, job, et cetera, et cetera, I've had like 20 or 30 jobs. I started working when I was seven. So, you know, everything that I'm doing now pulls from everything that I got to do or had to do in the past. And that's what's great about the job that I'm doing right now is everything has a purpose now. Like it has a use. And that's really important to me. Mm -hmm. So they've, they say that if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. And it's leaving the job at Amazon going into this. I always want people to finish the day with like a Yes, I finished. Right. I never get to do that because every day I finished in, I'm like, oh, I have so much shit to do. <laughs> do, you, do you ever do you ever like when you leave work now, you may still have work to do, but is, is your heart full? Like, do you just leave and go, I love this? Um, I or do you, is it is it a business now to you? No. Oh, no. I'm the kind of person who loves work in general. I, I love working. Um, and so it's really important to me to not settle with a job yeah. that I don't love. So I'm in this job because I sought this job out because I wanted this job because I knew that I would love it. Um, so that's the difference. Um, I walked onto the job and six weeks later, we went into a pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm exhausted, but I can't stop. I think is maybe the answer to that question. like. My biggest fault is that I can't stop hoping. I am a hopeless romantic. Mm -hmm. um, in And that's not just a relationship thing. That's like, that's who I am internally. Like I am always um, secretly hoping for that, that big moment or that uh, big solution or that, that there's going to be a movie moment. Mm -hmm that that's going to happen. Right. And so like, it's, it's exhausting to hope. Um, 
And so we're moving into year three of pandemic conditions and high demand. And, and you know, now we've talked about, you know, these these other services, nonprofits that are, are falling apart and can't continue on. And so it, it's, it's exhausting, but if I give up, then who's going to do this job? And the more that I love what it is that I do, the more curious I am about what's going on and, and how everything ties in together and what the solutions to these problems are and how to integrate the people who have the ability or the, cap you know, the money or the, the skill set. How do I get them to be as passionate about this as I am? Let me ask you a question. What's the best way, like for me, who works like 80 hours a week, what's the best way for me to donate? What's the best way for me if I have money that I've got earmarked to donate to the rescue mission or somewhere? Where is the best way? It's not, is it, is it if I stop at a stoplight and there's a guy with a sign on this, giving him money, does that help? Does it help giving money directly to you? Does it help? Like, where is the best place for the average listener right now if they don't have time to come donate their time, if they just have money and they want to help? What should I do with that money? I don't. Okay, here's the thing. That that's a bigger question. Um, Any time you give with the intent of making somebody else's life better, do it. Do it. And if your heart is to give, uh, you know, a hygiene packet to the homeless guy with a $5 bill attached to it, do that. Absolutely. You're making a difference. You're not going to solve his homelessness. Okay. So like you, you got to look at what it is. What is your intention? What are you hoping for? What is the outcome for that? Where are you most passionate? For me, I'm most passionate about food. Why? Because food equals love. So I'm going to give love and I'm going to do it through food because that's a universal need. Maybe your your love language is giving a uh, shelter, giving, you know, helping the homeless aspect. Maybe it's it's the healthcare aspect of it. Maybe it's the education aspect of it. Figure out what it is that that equals love to you that you are most passionate about. Find, you know, jump on the we have an internet, Google it. Read the website of the organization that most fits your passion, your interest, and your intent. Figure out what it is that they are specifically asking for and give that. So for us, you know, you go to, a, to the store.org, there's a donate button. That money allows us to buy food, buy supplies, uh, pay a living wage to our staff, keep the lights on. And, and make sure that we are offering, you know, a quality service to our community. Maybe you, um, maybe you feel very specifically that it's not money you want to give cleaning supplies. We have Amazon wish lists on our thing. Okay. Uh, we have a whole wish list that's just for seasonings, because we're we're trying to teach people how to cook at home or what to do with the items that we're giving them. And part of that is spices and seasonings. Mm -hmm. Have a flavorful meal have everything that everybody else has when they go into their house. Like you don't cook without spices and seasoning. So why would somebody who's coming to us have to do that? Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's, there's wish lists on there. There's volunteer opportunities on there. There's, you can just donate money. You can buy merch. We have merch on our site. You want a hat, you want a shirt, you want a water bottle, you want a sticker on the back of your car that helps get the word out that we exist, you know, do that. If you want to get into, addressing the root causes of things, 
vote. There you go. Mm-hmm. Amen. I mean, I, I don't, I, I think drop the mic there. I mean, vote, get out and vote. Yeah. It's so, so important. Yeah. Cause the grassroots votes, the, the votes for the people who are leading in your community, those are the ones that are going to have the most impact in your actual everyday life. Mm-hmm. And no. research, research what they stand for. Like do go online and look up the people who are, on the ballot and i and i didn't align with your values yeah absolutely. go vote for that person don't just i think people don't vote people, yeah it, it's vote really easy to vote partisan. like we've gotten very partisan yeah this is my team i vote for my team no look for the person who has a, a value system that aligns with yours otherwise you're voting against yourself mm-hmm. and don't vote against your neighbor mm-hmm. be for things not against things yeah Absolutely. Well, Courtney, I know you are familiar with the show. I want to say thank you so much for joining us today. And um, we got to do this again. We're going to do this live next time in our new studio that's going to be ready to go. I'm excited for you on this. I know. I'm, I'm, I'm using today a new microphone that will be the one in the studio. And I can hear my it, – it's the most amazing thing. And I have like uh, – you know, I have sounds. <laughs> Shiny toys. Oh, shiny toys. It's like, it's, uh, it's, it's scary. I have a scary story to tell you. I mean, every day when you read the news is a scary story. What are you going to do? Just like read headlines? <laughs> 240,000 new people are moving to Nashville in the next four years. Play that sound. <laughs> or, or. Uh, anyway, so you get to take us out today. Uh, I don't know if you've thought about your final thought, whatever you want to say, you, you, you know, you listen to the show, you get the end of it and you're like, Oh, what are they going to say? And I figured you'd have like a, something prepared today. Oh gosh. Courtney's uh, final thought. You get to take us out. You're going to get full screen. <laughs> oh, I don't want that, man. Dang. I don't know. Let's go. No, please. Let's no, go back. That please. is all you. <laughs> Introvert, introvert. I don't need to see my own face. Yes, you do. Okay. Courtney, Jerry's final thought. Take us out. All right. Well, as the oldest person in this meeting, uh, I want to remind people that, um, that, um, Did this feel like a meeting to you? Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) I do this a lot. Damn. (laughs) Felt like a meeting to her, Jen. All right, go ahead. Sorry, I'm sorry. I, I took a I, meeting I on Saturday morning. You should be, you know, that was an important meeting. So, that is um, right. That is a Saturday. It's well, this, yeah, well, this is, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I guess my my whole thing is, is like, don't don't settle. Don't assume that you have ever arrived to the end of your journey, or the place that you're at right now has to be the place that you stay. Um, the the whole. Uh, analogy of life as a journey is what nobody tells you is there's no destination. You don't, you don't ever arrive to a spot and you're like, okay, and I have, I am now here. All you really do is level up to the next Vista and see the next challenge and take that on. And that doesn't mean that you don't find places where you camp out for a little bit and rest and renew and, and eat and, you know, sit around the campfire. But if, if you, 
ever assume that what you're doing, that there's going to be an endpoint, then you miss out on the beauty of the journey because you're anticipating the destination. So my whole thing is um, it's really important that regardless of what it is that I'm doing right now in my career, I have no expectations that I'm going to be doing this the same way 20 years down the road. I hope I'm not. Like I continually have things that I want to do next and I want to do next and I want to do next. Um, and what that drives me to do is always be curious, always be listening to the people around me and what their experiences are because they've been traveling some other path. So, you know, is that the right path for me? Can I follow that? What's your experience? Let me learn from that. Uh, and then taking all of those things and, and, and looking for what the next thing, like I said, hopeless romantic dreamer. Like, if you don't take chances and try the next new thing, you don't get to create a space for somebody to follow behind you. And so maybe the journey is you're clearing the path. Uh, it, Brad and Kim started this thing. What did it do? It created a space for me to come in and say, here's what I can offer this. Uh, every time somebody innovates, and does something new, they create a space for other people to fill in behind that and learn from it and grow and create a, you know, the next layer and the next layer. We love these heroes journey kind of stories, um, but we keep forgetting that we could, we could be that hero too. So that's my whole thing. If you, if you're passionate about something, if you want to know what's around the bend, go do it. Like, what are you waiting for? That's my whole thing. Wow. It was poignant. <laughs> it's, I don't, I don't, I don't think people you know. call it irritating because you know, if you, I don't if think you're you know around, what you just said. Yeah. I don't think you know how, um, how what you just said just landed. So. Be relentless. Awesome. <laughs> Be relentless. Courtney Vrablick. Thank you so much for spending this uh, Friday morning with us. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Duly <This>, noted. <laughs> this Friday morning, uh, to start off the weekend, that was some great advice that you just mm -hmm. threw out there. Just just life. That's some, some life stuff you just talked about right there. And hopefully other people heard it the way that I heard it. Oh. And I know Jen heard it. <laughs> so uh, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank okay. you. This was fun. Big thank you to Courtney Vrablick for joining the podcast. That was fun. That was an amazing conversation. I learned a lot, and um, I hope that you did too. I think that every once in a while to take a step back and, and think about kind of how blessed you are and the things that you have and or the things you don't have and uh, how you can help. I don't know. Uh, just I think I love thought-provoking conversations, and I think that was definitely one of them. Again, thank you, Courtney, for, for joining us. That's it. That's it for the weekend. Have a great weekend, and we will be back next week with all new shows, hopefully live in studio. We're super excited. New studio coming at you. Um, here we go. Hope you guys are being safe. Love you guys. Bye. <laughs>